Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Law is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Twill, This Week in Law with Denise Howell. Episode 112, recorded May 20th, 2011, 15th Century Planking. This episode of This Week in Law is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. Hey, folks, it's Denise Howell, and you've tuned in for This Week in Law, episode 112. We've got a great panel of folks to talk with you, including Tom Ferensky, the Silicon Valley watcher. Hi, Tom. Hi, Great to have you on the show finally. I've been uh, pestering Tom for a while to join us, and I'm thrilled that he finally has consented to do so. Uh, Tom's blog is one of my favorites, and he's definitely uh, one of the great voices and commentators and observers of Silicon Valley. So um, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Denise. Also with us on a return visit to Twill is Justin Gray of Gray on Claims. Hey, Justin. Hey, Denise, it's great to be back on the show. Wonderful to have you back. Uh, Justin is a patent lawyer and is going to chime in on some patent-related issues as well as everything else we talk about today. Um, also joining us is our wonderful guest host from last week's show and frequent, frequent Twill guest, Evan Brown. Hi, Evan. Hey, how's it going, Denise? You know, it's a real bittersweet feeling to to be here today. I know it's going to be an awesome show. It's going to, you know, totally rock out, but... If you haven't heard, the world is going to end tomorrow at around noon. So I'm sad that this is the last twill I guess we'll ever do together. So I hope we're going to have as much fun as what we uh, you know expect to. I know, I know. Let's make it a good one in light of that. I was just hearing that on the radio as I dropped my kid off from school. But what I didn't uh, hear is why the world is ending tomorrow exactly. Can you fill me in? Jesus is coming. Jesus is oh, coming. Is? To, it's the, oh, the it's rapture. The rapture. It's yes. finally the rapture. Yes. Right set on. Your, set your alarm clock early. You want to make the most of tomorrow. Okay, good, good. Do we have a d- an hour? An appointed I think it's time? around noon. I don't know if that's Eastern or Central, but, you know, it's, it's, the clock is ticking. <laughs> noon wherever you are. Presumably <laughs> the rapture can figure that out and go time zone by time zone, I would think. Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess it may not be all at once. It might be a sweeping kind of thing. Who knows? <laughs> all right, I hate to, I'm sorry. I'm not laughing at anybody's religious beliefs. Uh, I'm terribly and offended. And if it might have sounded that way momentarily, that was not my intent. Um, Okay, so uh, some people are uh, religiously devoted, how about that, hey, uh, to the stock LinkedIn today. Yesterday, we had a uh, phenomenally um, event-filled, up-the-charts IPO, tech IPO, first one in a long time, uh, and LinkedIn is now a public company, and let's see, what are they trading at right now? Refresh, refresh. We've got them trading at $95.38 a share. Uh, And I bring it up on our show, This Week in Law, um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, Number one, um, it is the professional social network, right? So um, 
for me personally, I, I have lots of people who are in the legal profession, but maybe not tech aficionados who are constantly asking me about LinkedIn. Do they have to be on LinkedIn? Their clients are asking them to friend them on LinkedIn and they wonder what that's all about. So um, I think it's interesting that uh, the professional network is is gaining traction and perhaps roping people in and we'll, we'll do more so, I think, after the IPO. Um, and and secondly, uh, I think it's um, interesting just from the, uh, the standpoint of the fact that uh, the other social networks struggle with these privacy considerations, um, how they handle user data, what they're doing with it, uh, whether governments should be concerned about that. But LinkedIn seems to exist in a bubble outside of that because of its professional um, orientation. Uh, so I throw this out here for our discussion. Tom, you wrote about the IPO. What do you think? Yeah, it's it's interesting because obviously um, it seems to provide a green uh, green light to a lot of uh, other tech IPOs that are waiting in the wings. Uh, we've had uh, ten years of very few IPOs, and uh, and, and that's a problem for Silicon Valley and, and innovation because it's not putting money back into the system. Um, uh, money has been coming back into the system through uh, acquisitions. Companies have been acquiring some of the more promising startups, but now uh, it seems like there's a there's a new uh, there's a new appetite for uh, tech IPOs, and and so there's there's a there's a lot of companies waiting in the wings um, to, to to follow LinkedIn's ex- example. Right, Evan, uh, have you uh, jumped out and bought your first shares of stock? Uh, no, I haven't yet. You know, I mean, I, from what I gather, and, and I guess Tom, you'd know about this, you know, better than anyone. And, you know, what I've read is mostly institutional investors at at this point. I don't. Have, did you buy any, Denise? Have you got? No, any? I have not. You know, I just got back from my trip where I was gone last week, um, and yeah, I, I, this is something we should throw in for discussion too. Especially, I'd like to um, hear from Tom on it too, uh, because I I'm sort of reluctant these days to buy tech stocks because I do this show every week and uh, it's something that you know I'm sort of on the fence about. I don't really consider myself a journalist, but um, in some senses, I guess I am a commentator and come on and, and do this stuff. So um, I do own some tech stocks and I have disclosed those in various places from time to time in my career as a blogger and a host here. Um, and you know, my, my, I guess, bottom line take on it is that... Uh, I own so little that it's, you know, it it really wouldn't um, make a huge difference. And, you know, I'm not going to go out and plug Google or Apple or whatever else I might own a few shares of simply because I own those shares. It's not, Mm -hmm. you know, there's no real one-to-one correlation on that. But yet at the same time, you know, you don't want to do things that that make you look slimy uh, as as we all know. Um, Tom, Tom, what's your... How do you come down on that? Well, I, I agree with you. I, I don't uh, invest in companies in, in, in sectors which I cover as a reporter. And, and that's from my upbringing, you know, working for the Financial Times and so on. And, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's, a, it's a code of ethics that uh, all media organizations follow. Except recently, uh, TechCrunch editor Mike Arrington said he's going to start investing or has begun investing in, in startups. And... Uh, um, and he says that's not going to be a. Con- he says it will be a conflict of interest, but it, his reporting won't change. And I, I don't think that's uh, that's the right thing to do. I, I think Silicon Valley uh, 
and, and its thousands of startups need, need a level playing field. They shouldn't have to worry about if a reporter has a financial interest in, in a competitor, for example. Uh, it should be a level playing field because innovation is important to this, to this country, to the economy. And uh, we, we need, uh, we need uh, a media, media coverage that's not conflicted in any way. Um, you know, Mike Angton will say, well, personal, uh, personal connections at companies are more of a problem than financial. And, and that's not true. You know, I might have a friend at a startup and I might write a story occasionally or something because of that. But it's not, it's not, it's nothing like a financial interest if I had money invested in that startup. Um, that's a, that's a whole different, um, uh, ball of, uh, wax, really. Right. Uh, Justin, what do you think about the uh, the nature of LinkedIn um, and how well it did in its IPO? I was, you know, this is sort of the business niche social network. It's not Facebook, uh, but yes, it, yet it certainly has generated a lot of excitement. Um, do you think that its business orientation is sufficient to really um, move it forward as a big public company? Or maybe perhaps that's helpful? because it helps it avoid some of these other issues that uh, around privacy and um, information leaks. What do you think? Well, uh, first off, I was definitely surprised with how high the stock went. And I'm not, uh, you know, I, I'm not very much involved in the stock market by any means, also because I, I do a lot of work in the tech sector. Um, but, you know, one thing that strikes me at least with my own personal use of LinkedIn I am on LinkedIn I have some you know dozens of uh, contacts and you know log in on a fairly regular basis but the vast majority of the people that at least I'm connected to seem to use LinkedIn in a very uh, passive manner they almost seem you know not to know really what to do with it they kind of know we should be on LinkedIn and we should be connected with all the people that we know. But once we get there, uh, what, you know, what further can we do? Um, so I'm, you know, I'm a little skeptical um, overall of LinkedIn just because, you know, with my own personal experience, I don't see it as as much as the same vein as Facebook, where you have a lot of people, a lot more people who are much more active in the community, in the social community, whereas LinkedIn, at least with my personal experience, is, uh, you know, much more passive um, use. Right. I think for lawyers, it's sort of, be it's supplanted this thing that for decades, if not <laughs> centuries, uh, was the uh, directory uh, called Martindale Hubble, where, you know, if you had somebody that you uh, wanted to contact and find out about them and their reputation, um, you would go to that big, t huge, gigantic books um, that used to reside in the law library and uh, still do, I'm sure, but they have their own online presence. But I think that they have been, you know, completely supplanted by the likes of LinkedIn, which have um, given the opportunity for professionals to uh, network with their peers and also their clients. Do you agree, Evan? I do. There's no doubt it's really in a sweet spot when it comes to online social networking. If we think about how it arose historically, it arose, you know, out of this context that was um, characterized by sites like Friendster and MySpace, you know, is when LinkedIn started to come into 
uh, conscious, you know, public consciousness or professional public consciousness here. And so it has always been differentiated from sites like Facebook and from, from MySpace and Friendster in as much as it purports to be and indeed is professional. So for that reason, uh, folks who aren't necessarily early adopters when it comes to stuff on the Internet and, and, and you know, web platforms they feel safe joining in there. It's, you know, it's like any place where a professional can go and it's okay to wear a tie, they'll think, oh, well, this is okay. At least I'm not going to stumble and fall and do something that I shouldn't be doing. Uh, I'm not going to embarrass myself. I'm not going to, uh, uh, you know, be falling into some pitfall. You know, the word pitfall is something that professionals love talking about, lawyers especially, all the pitfalls of social networking, you know. You're, there's, there's, there are very few pitfalls at, at LinkedIn. So, you know, because of that sweet spot that it's in, it, it has this ability to draw in somewhat of a mainstream adopter kind of crowd. And that is, that arises just as much from the fact that, you know, it's boring there. You don't go to <laughs> hang out on on LinkedIn, you know, you, you you go to Facebook to look at pictures and you know make jokes and share videos and stuff. You go to LinkedIn, I don't know, after you meet somebody at a conference and you want to learn a little bit more about them or or whatever, you know, just kind of if you need somebody's email address or or whatever. That's not true so, for so, everybody. Okay, well, I'd love to hear about you know some some fun no, experiences. I, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm the same with you. I don't spend that much time on LinkedIn, but increasingly, I'm meeting people who are saying I'm spending more time on LinkedIn now than I than I than I have done on Facebook. And I used to be on Facebook all the time. They'll tell me. Uh, so it's 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 interesting how um, how Facebook is now becoming more about family and friends when before it was about business contacts as well as family and friends and and much of the business part of facebook or what it was for people is now moving to linkedin and and i know people that spend a lot of time on linkedin they're, they're not sharing photos of their vacation or anything but they are sharing uh, articles related to uh, their profession for example and and so it's it's kind of surprising how how much more momentum LinkedIn has, has gotten uh, over the past year uh, and, uh, and become more important for, uh, for people in terms of networking and, and so on. Right. So Tom, you, you raise a good point because I think that in addition to sort of supplanting whatever professional directories used to um, exist out there or are still clinging to life out there, uh, it also it sort of in my experience and use has supplanted all the listservs I used to belong to. So if you're a part of some professional group where the people would communicate with one another traditionally via email, LinkedIn seems to have gobbled up that niche as well by uh, having, you know, whatever you want to call it, their groups, discussions there um, in the context of their site. And you can get those summarized and sent to you in an email, but um, the discussions there seem to be... I, I agree with you, Evan, that, that they're not exactly the liveliest discussions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, the, we should yeah, probably uh, put you in touch with LinkedIn's marketing people because they need to use that tagline, join LinkedIn, it's boring. <laughs> right. Either that or they'll want to give me some rehabilitation. I don't know. You know I mean, there's no doubt that it's, it, it serves its purpose and it's for stuff that is in the work-a-day world. You know, you go there to, to engage in these discussions and have professional network and networking and, and that is, you know, terribly important and obviously it's of a, a very substantial value, leaving, you know, aside a quest the question for a moment of 
whether this is you know grossly overvalued at this point. It's it's no uh, mistake. It's certainly no surprise that it is the first one for which we're seeing an IPO here because it you know the professional context is where a lot of dollars are, and by necessity the issues and the level of risk in the investment and the overall perception of it is is going to be different. And that's neither good nor bad. That's just the the way it is due to the nature of, of the platform. Right. Beatmaster just cuts to the chase in the IRC and says, but the question remains, can you play Angry Birds on LinkedIn? And uh, <laughs> I think the answer to that, well, can you play Angry Birds on Facebook? I've never well, actually done that. You know, it's usually more yeah, of a mobile device thing for me. I'm, but. I'm way too busy on my farm to, to notice. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there there is some, you know, little interesting anecdotal things that happens on this. One of the, I guess I do spend quote unquote more time on LinkedIn than I think because I have it set up so that my Twitter feed automatically goes through LinkedIn. So it's not uncommon for people, especially here at the office to say, oh yeah, I saw your, yeah, I saw your LinkedIn update about this. And it kind of takes me, uh, you know, the, the, the time is getting shorter that it takes me to realize what they're talking about now. <laughs> right. And it's just so funny. I lose, I, I, you know, I, I forget about that context because something I'll tweet, you know, is for, you know, I, I have my Twitter followers in mind when I think of that. And that's, it, it's somewhat overlapping, but it's not a completely overlapping sub, subset of people who follow, who I'm, you know, connected with on LinkedIn and who follow me on Twitter. So sometimes the context can be completely lost. And I think to myself, my gosh, I am being completely too, uh, irreverent for the LinkedIn crowd. I need to uh, maybe unlink those accounts. Who knows? Yeah, yeah or, no, I think that's a good just... point. Um, you, Go you do everything needs to be, you know, my 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 Twitter feed, my my blog posts. They they, they get published on LinkedIn as well. But um, uh, and and some sometimes I'll, I'll publish stuff on Facebook. But you, you can't just dump everything into uh, LinkedIn, for example, or dump everything into Facebook or dump everything into Twitter. You do have to be conscious of, of different um, different groups of readers, the time of the, even the time of the day and night and so on. Um, for sure. So it, it, it does make life a little bit more complicated, but I think uh, it also helps to um, focus um, uh, focus a lot of this stuff and, and, and bring down a noise level you know, because the noise level online can be horrendous uh, with people's like buttons and um, and uh, <laughs> sharing. So, Definitely. Um, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, if LinkedIn succeeds by being boring and recycling Twitter, uh, Facebook, which can also recycle Twitter quite effectively, um, is uh, <laughs> is much less boring and and tends to get it. Uh, Things like hearings before the Senate Commerce Subcommittee on Consumer Protection. Uh, that happened earlier this week. Uh, there was a hearing on mobile privacy that involved the big three, Facebook, Apple, and Google. And uh, some questions for them, uh, primarily on location services, which they continue to say, um, you know, if you read the testimony, uh, we're actually not... If everything from we're actually not collecting any location data at all, uh, and then you read the asterisk, unless... Uh, the users specifically consent, and then uh, also uh, users can opt out easily, and you know, so they're trying to placate the uh, folks in Washington on that front. But another little interesting tidbit that came out in the hearing, and uh, it was the Commerce Committee Chair Jay Rockefeller who was really pounding the podium about this one. Is it turns out that uh, Facebook has now? Let me get my numbers straight. I think it was over five million users. Um, who are 
minors. Uh, then this is a report, you know, under thir- not just minors, but under 13, under the uh, the policy age of uh, how old you must be to use Facebook. And uh, this was uh, done by a survey and report um, from Consumer Reports. Uh, and I personally um, am not surprised about that at all because I have so many friends who are parents of older children, you know, in their uh, tween years who have made the decision that their children are actually sophisticated enough and net savvy enough and mature enough to use Facebook despite what Facebook's terms and conditions say. Uh, and they're on there. Let's see, um, 7.5 million underage children, according to consumer reports, are using Facebook in violation of their terms of service. So um, any uh, thoughts about this one, Evan? Can you uh, see your kids jumping on Facebook anytime soon? And uh, and what? It, and let me ask the, the follow-up question. Is this really Facebook's responsibility? Yeah, I, I certainly like that second question even mm-hmm. even better there um there's there's my oldest one is five you know we we, we discussed this before and and you know i certainly i mean it, it would come as no surprise to anyone to hear that it's a high priority for me to inculcate proper values in my children as to the responsible use and assimilation of technology into their lives it's one of the most important things that you know i think that a father in the early 21st century or a parent for that matter, has, you know, the responsibility toward his or her children to to do that. So, uh, you know, with that, I feel that, uh, you know, when it's a close call, whether to um, introduce the technology and let it become part of the kid's life or to insulate them and shield it from them and not let it be a part of their life, when that's a close call of whether to do that, I would tend to err or at least, you know, go on the side of introducing the technology because uh, in most circumstances, obviously, an informed um, person can make a better decision as to what is the responsible use and what's the right thing to do. So, um, you know, my, I let my, my kids play, uh, of course, <laughs> I say this all the time, you know, Angry Birds is huge, of course, you know, they, they play games, uh, you know, getting the iPad was, is, was as, as big a deal for my five-year-old as it was for, for me. Um, but as far as going on a social network, you know, it, it, that's, you know, hugely, that, that's a, a huge drastic step to take, you know, opening up the world like that. There clearly are risks. So, you know, one has to be responsible. So, you know, I would be um, upset, you know, five years from now, if my 10 year old son, he'll be 10 at that point was on Facebook and I didn't know about it. And I hadn't, didn't have the opportunity to uh, closely supervise, um, you know, what he was, was doing on there and, and, and all of that. So it definitely is a problem. The, The segue then is, you know, whose problem is it? And clearly, you know, Facebook should not be the one that is entirely responsible for this because they can't be. And, and I think Jay, um, uh, Rock, you know, Rockefeller, West Virginia, the congressman from West Virginia, you know, really, uh, it sounds like he was lambasting Facebook a little bit too much here, um, kind of making it personal to Mark Zuckerberg saying, you know, one of the reasons that Facebook has this problem is because its founder is only 27 years old and he doesn't have, you know, the right social responsibility and all this stuff. That is clearly too taking it too far in uh, assigning responsibility like this. It's got to be, um, you know, as with all things, it's got to be a moderate kind of approach here, a collaborative kind of approach, an informed approach, bringing up that motif uh, quickly again. There's got to be a combination of 
responsibility at the individual level. But not only that, there has to be a means by which the platform allows those responsible sensibilities and those norms to become actual and not just potentialities or hopes or wishes. There's got to be ways that, you know, the reasonably um, uh, the, that, that a person with, with reasonable, ordinary technological acumen as a parent can do to implement things that will protect children, not only to protect them, but to also bring them in to the next uh, generation, to, to maturity in the next generation with the ever-increasing uh, sophistication of all of this technology. It's an incredibly uh, complicated issue. Yes, it is. And I, I can see why um, the committee would want to chat about it with um, Facebook and others who collect information from those under 13 in uh, violation of federal law, because that's actually what it is when they do that. Justin, do you think that um, if parents are intervening and making this judgment call and consciously violating Facebook's terms of service by allowing their children to go on the site under the age of 13, um, twofold question for you. Do you think that that's something that, that Facebook should be responsible for policing more actively? And do you think it's something that parents should ultimately uh, be responsible for on a legal, uh, on the legal side? It's, you know, I, I, I first will say I agree with pretty much everything that Evan said. I think he, you know, summed it up um, very, very well that there is, you know, a lot of it, I think, comes down to the parents and making sure that your children's use of technology is appropriate and is safe. Um, I'll also note that I think very, I think within the last week, I actually got a new friend on Facebook that is about six months years old or six months old. I, a friend of mine recently had um, friends of mine recently had their first child and have just set the child up with a Facebook account um, and they're just, you know, posting pictures, of, you know, cute pictures of the baby and, and outfits and whatnot. So I also question a little bit, you know, whenever I see these kind of blanket statements and, and, you know, large numbers and things, I, I question um, where is the number really coming from? So at least some of these, you know, the number is 7.5 million who are presumably under the age of 13. I, you know, just from my personal experience, I wonder what percentage of those are things like my friends who are, you know, putting their, uh, putting their baby on Facebook right away. Um, but overall, you know, I think it, I'm not, I, I, uh, in my previous life, I was a computer programmer, but not, but not anymore. I, I would find it, you know, Facebook can do what it can just to um, try to weed out those, if that's going to be their policy that you have to be over, you know, age 13. Um, they can only do what they can. And, you know, the internet is the internet. And um, there are obviously various ways to get onto websites if, you know, you're not, uh, technically the age limit, but you present yourself as that age. Um, so I think, you know, it's a combination of what Facebook can realistically do, but I think even more so um, parents making sure that, you know, they're, they're, they're appropriately monitoring their, their children's use of technological tools like this. Yeah, and it's a... Uh, um 
there's there's software out now which um, uh, which comes from like the antivirus security uh, uh, sector, which which will look at uh, um, um, look. look Look at people's Facebook accounts, I mean, including kids and adults, uh, to see if there's any malware, if there's any links they shouldn't be uh, clicking on. Also, it will alert parents if their children are uh, engaging with inappropriate people, because uh, this one company has these algorithms that can tell tell the age of somebody. Because on Facebook, you really don't know if the person is who they are, which, by the way, is something that LinkedIn doesn't have a problem with, because you are who you are. Um, but on Facebook, you can be anybody, and and you know you hear stories about uh, 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 predators uh, engaging with young children. Well, this software will will look at things like that and will send parents alerts, warning them um, that maybe their child is engaging with. Uh, 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 people who are inappropriate for their age group and so on. So, so there are tools coming out which, uh, which will help parents and families um, kind of avoid uh, some of the uh, online pitfalls that uh, these communities uh, present. Right. That's a really interesting observation, Tom, against the backdrop of Facebook, Google and Apple being sort of called into the principal's office in the form <laughs> of this hearing. Uh, Senator uh, uh, Rockefeller, the chairman, um, said consumers want to understand and have control of their personal information. Unfortunately, today, this expectation is not being met. The companies here today are leaders in the industry. So today I ask them to lead. So I guess the, the logical conclusion from that statement is, I think, that uh, the chairman would like to see them taking more proactive measures, such as you mentioned, um, on their own, rather than leaving it to the third party app marketplace to take care of that. I think it's also really interesting that you observed, you know, you are who you are on LinkedIn, but not necessarily on Facebook. You're supposed to be on Facebook under their terms of service. You are not allowed to impersonate someone or um, say that you are someone you're not. I suppose you could you could say that you are, you know, a walrus or something, <laughs> and there's nobody going to come after yeah. you. But uh, say that you're a walrus. Um, the walrus is I Paul. am the walrus. <laughs> I am the walrus. But technically, uh, people have uh, gotten into trouble over over saying they're someone they're not. It's really more of a, a community standards thing um, that keeps you who you are on LinkedIn. I'd say I'd argue more than uh, what the respective terms of service uh, specify because you're supposed to do the same thing on both, but in, in practice, people don't. Um, okay, uh, any, any final thoughts on this before uh, we move on to some other considerations? Tom? Um, no, but I, I think this is, a, this is a topic that's not going to go away because, yeah. uh, because the nature of the medium keeps changing, so there's going to be... Uh, new new kinds of exploits and so on, which uh, um, you, you can't really predict at the moment. So, so it, it is good that Facebook and Google should be proactive. However, they don't want to do too much like that because if they become responsible for the content on their sites, then then that puts them in a different legal category. Um, for example, newspapers they have a legal responsibility uh, 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 that. Uh, 
you know, a company like Google or Facebook doesn't have because they, they, they just want to see themselves as offering a platform for other people. Now, if they have to start policing that platform, it's going to get very expensive very quickly. And, you know, the valuation is going to drop and so on. So, um, so it's in their interest to try and keep away from doing too much policing and just saying, look, we're just a platform, just like the Internet is a platform. You get all sorts of stuff happening. It's got nothing to do with us. You know, the, the problem is somewhere else. Now, you know, that, they can't get away with that forever. Uh, for example, in Italy, um, uh, Google ran into a problem last year because, uh, uh, because of a video somebody had uploaded uh, showing a, a, a child being bullied at school, an autistic child. And um, Google eventually pulled the video, but it took a long time for that to happen. And uh, the Italian courts held them responsible. Um, and you know, so if we get more cases like that, it's really going to change uh, the way people view Google, uh, for example, in this case, and YouTube from a platform to more like a newspaper where uh, you have uh, responsibilities to, uh, towards the community that go beyond being just a platform. Yep, absolutely. And and I think that that's a really good segue to what I want to talk about next, which is your post, Tom, on body video cameras and your observation. This is uh, the San Francisco Police Department uh, beginning to, um, let's see, their police chief, Greg Sur, looking to equip officers with cameras to capture arrests. We've talked a lot about this topic on the show, uh, not so much about the filming uh, from the officer's side, but from the um, arrestees side or the bystanders side, uh, people filming police doing their jobs. And we'll, we'll have a good example of that in a second here too. Uh, but here the, the police are um, equipping officers, hopefully with body cameras to capture arrests. I've, in my local police department here in Newport Beach, California, uh, I've definitely seen uh, officers with helmet cameras on before doing DUIs to make sure that, you know, if there's any discussion about the propriety of the arrest that, or I'm sure they do it in other D, in other contexts. I just happened to be there and witness uh, one of my friends undergoing um, that process, the DUI process. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm sure these are out there. But your observation, Tom, that uh, there will be many social repercussions. You'll never know when you're on camera. You will be guarded in everything you say and do. Um, I think that that, you know, resonates with what we've been talking about, um, about whose responsibility it is to to police these behavioral issues on social networks. Um, you want to elaborate on that thought for us? Yeah, um, you know, uh, we just started writing about this uh, last year. Um, just thinking about the um, the number of computers that's out there, you know, our phones are computers, so we've got laptops, we've got desktops, uh, and they're just everywhere. But every computer also has a camera in it pretty much now. So, so you've got this uh, ubiquity of computing devices, but also you've got this ubiquity of video devices, recording devices, and, and, and you know, you can fit a camera into the smallest of packages these days and uh, and stick a wireless chip in it and, and you're, you're streaming video wherever you go. We saw that with Justin TV, for example, a couple of years ago where people were putting their whole lives online. Uh, and, you know, these tiny little cameras, we're just going to get more and more of them. And I just see the future. It's, it's, 
you're not going to even know if there's a camera in the room with you. You might be recorded as you speak. Um, uh, there might be all sorts of uh, recording devices going on. Um, how 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 are we going to are we going to create new uh, rules uh, in our society? Uh, is it going to have to be? Uh, will there be new laws, for example, recording telephone conversations? You have to disclose that the conversation's been recorded. Will we have that in our personal lives? You know, mm -hmm. people will argue, well, um, my recording device is always on for uh, safety reasons, you know, in case I'm attacked or mugged, um, you know, the, the, there's video of it. Um, uh, and so right now we, 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 we have an expectation of... Uh, that our conversations aren't being broadcast on the internet or anywhere. But in the future, I don't think we can say that that's going to be true because we, we don't know if our friends, our colleagues uh, are recording uh, stuff. So we're going to assume that it, it is being recorded. And we, we, that's obviously going to affect the way we, um, the way we behave. We're, we're going to be less candid, possibly. We, we're going to um, be more guarded in what we say. And... You know, in some cases, that's probably for good reason. It's it's probably good to do that. But um, are we going to lose a lot of the spontaneity we have in interactions? Um, uh, I, I think, um, you know, living an always-on world is one thing, but always on camera, always on uh, on a recording, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a completely different world. And, you know... Um, you know, we have a public life, but we also have an expectation of a private life. Um, are we still going to be able to have that private life? Um, some people say, well, there's no privacy anymore. Everything, you know, um, uh, everything is online or everything is, should be online. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't believe in that kind of extreme, but um, we, we are going to be facing some interesting societal uh, questions around this technology. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Crucial Wax in IRC says a phone call enters your private space, your home, for example. Seems like it's different when you're out in public, but that begs the question, you know, what's, when are you out in public? When someone's checking in at your house on Foursquare and uh, you're, you know, they've got their body camera on as they come in for your intimate family dinner. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of a different situation. Uh, Evan, any thoughts here? I like thinking about this in terms of the Orwellian paradigm and pondering how the principle that underlies the kind of panoptic view of the government that the government had in, in the book 1984 is somehow manifesting itself, but it's doing it in a way that when most of us read George Orwell for the first time didn't expect that it actually would happen. And what I mean is this, there's this uh, specter or this concern that we are always under surveillance and that we're always being watched, but it's not in the form of the telescreen that Orwell described, you know, it's, which I envision as like a flat panel television that everybody has in the room. And you know that Big Brother, i.e. the government, is watching you through the, the telescreen. No, it's much more radically distributed, uh, you know, in that the, 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 the eyes, if you will, of Big, uh, the, the, the eyes that Big Brother has aren't 
the telescreen, but there are these cameras that Tom is talking about on all these ubiquitous devices or these devices that have become ubiquitous out there uh, in the, the field of time and space. What's more, it's not the government that's doing the surveillance. It's not Big Brother, although Big Brother, the government could have a way into all of these things. It's more so the the sum total of everybody else watching each other. And for some reason, I don't think we are as quick to find that objectionable because we keep buying these mobile devices and these computers that have uh, webcams and, you know, we, we, we appreciate this and we enjoy it. And, and you know, the, the, nobody is making a big deal, a huge deal at least, about the cops adopting this technology. Clearly, you know, articles are being written about it and we're talking about it here. So it does have its problematic aspects, but we're not in, a, we're not in an uproar like we would be if the government mandated that there's a telescreen in everyone's house now. So it's interesting to see how there is a certain principle of, and I use the term, you know, panoptic. I'm thinking of the Jeremy Bentham, you know, the philosopher who described the panopticon, the prison where, you know, the guard can be in the middle and, and see everyone, you know, the cells are arranged in a big circle around that. You know, there's this panopticism, this panoptical view of things that is actually very uh, nuanced and very interstitial uh, between our lives every day. And it's, it's, it's difficult to regulate because bumps up into uh, contradictory norms. Our desire to want to have the convenience and the security of these devices, but then the uh, corresponding risk of the, the loss of privacy. So it, it's, for that reason, it's terribly difficult to regulate. In the UK, um, uh, the, the United Kingdom has more uh, public cameras than any other country. I saw some numbers on it. There are millions everywhere. And, you know, to, to, to try and uh, cut down on street crime and so on. Um, so in the UK, they've been dealing with this issue and discussing uh, uh, this kind of society, if you will, for, for some time. I'm not sure if they've come to any, um, you know, radical conclusions about it. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, in the in the personal space, um, we we haven't had that explosion of cameras yet, but it's coming. Um, it, it's 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 around the corner. Right. Uh, I think that Burke has something we can look at on this front. Flipped a bit around. Uh, there was a 17-year-old journalist working for MinnesotaChange.org. Here he is. He was doing story on unwarranted raids. He told the officer that. The officer promptly came over and arrested him. And uh, he was taken back to the police station. He was questioned. He was uh, a well-educated 17-year-old. He was asked why he was filming the officer. And he told them uh, the officer was in a public place. And uh, I have a First Amendment right. There, I, and there's no privacy interest in what he was doing. Uh, he was told... Uh, by the officer who arrested him and brought him in that he was interfering with a police investigation. So I guess we get into some tensions there uh, about when one may do that or not. Um, but really, he didn't seem to be interfering very much. He just happened to be standing there with a camera, caught the officer's attention. And then uh, when he told him what he was doing, uh, got himself arrested. Uh, but he... Um, and if you'd like to watch that whole video, we've got it in our discussion points. Uh, this time at Internet Cases, delicious.com slash Internet Cases slash 112. That's where our discussion points are for the show today. Um, so I, I think this is uh, an interesting example of, you know, keeping people accountable on all fronts. Oh, the, the footnote to the story is that the officer 
who um, arrested him got himself suspended as a result of doing this. So there, I think it's a big gray area. Uh, we've had lots and lots of stories where um, recording via audio or video, uh, the police has been challenged by the police and counter-challenged by people like the ACLU. So um, we're going to see that, I think, continue to unfold. Uh, Justin, any thoughts about, uh, I think the 17-year-old's name, if I'm not mistaken from the video, is Robert Wanick. Uh, any, any thoughts about his uh, experience here? Uh, I think the only thing I have to add is that there's definitely, we have to keep in mind that there is going to be a balance, um, you know, regarding what your expectations are when you're both in public and in private. Um, and given where technology is going, we don't exactly know what that balance is going to be yet. Uh, further, I'm a... I'm still a strong believer in uh, that most people, not all people, but most people have a fair degree of common sense. Um, and hopefully, you know, once all of this, you know, once we see where things are going, um, common sense will hopefully rule the day and we will find out where the appropriate balance is. There will always be, um, you know, regardless of the particular technology at issue, or basically any issue, there will always be situations like um, like the video that we just saw, where something is, you know, either taken completely out of proportion, or you know, just there was a potential lack of common sense. Um, but just because there are that we're seeing maybe more and more of uh, these types of situations lately come up lately doesn't mean that the appropriate balance once all is said and done um, will eventually be set in in some you know way that actually appeals to common sense right web 4089 in irc is saying if every cop can video you why can't you do the same and we we certainly are getting to a society where i think that expectation um, will be the norm that you know, in public that there are likely to have uh, to be a number of video cameras on you from various sources at all times. JD and Kenyon in IRC says uh, you just have to wear a Halloween mask in the UK with all their cameras all the time, always a different one. So <laughs> there's a remedy from you, you IRC. Know, you know, we, we've really got to be careful with, with these discussions. And, you know, it, it, it's so easy for us to you know, let our thoughts swing to, to one side, or maybe I'm just speaking for myself, you know, thinking, mm -hmm. you know, these, these pigs, you know, that cop was such a goon, you know, why was he doing that? Why, why is he being Barney Fife? And he obviously tramples on the constitution and has no sensibilities whatsoever. We've really got to be careful in, um, you know, letting our minds shift so far to the other direction, because, you know, we are a, a, a nation that is governed by the rule of law, and uh, unfortunately, the responsibility here, I am getting all on a soapbox, high and mighty, whatever. <laughs> I'm just just talking, you know, unfortunately, the responsibility of enforcing that rule of law rests on the shoulders of people who are imperfect. So there's a couple of ways of looking at this. That cop in North Dakota, he may very well have been a complete idiot and did something idiotic and deserves to be suspended and, you know, should be thrown off the force and his name stricken from the book of life and all of that stuff. Or it could be that, you know, we're just seeing a little snippet of the film here. Maybe this kid had been harassing him all afternoon and this was finally just the last straw and he really was 
you know, impeding an investigation or something like that. We've got to be so careful to not let our sensibilities get riled in a way that leads us to draw such radical conclusions about things that we are doing a disservice to the real and critically important enterprise of law enforcement. Um, you know, so we we just got to be we just got to be measured and, and circumspect when we're when we're thinking about these issues because um, you know the, it's getting to be so much more of a nuanced picture all the time how to actually do this to balance these rights. There are so many more opportunities for rights to to be to be trampled upon or at least to be abridged uh, because of the technology that we have. Just got to be so measured with with this. That's all I'm uh, I'm counseling against moderation. I think that's more not not the first time I've done that. Or I'm counseling for moderation. It's not the first time I've done that. And sometimes you counsel against it too. So you've got uh, all yeah. your bases covered. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's that's um, great. We can speak with fork well, tongue. Well, here's here's an area where where both moderation and video, I think, come into play and give us another just uh, shade to the discussion of how life proceeds in an era where online video is so prevalent and how that can have ramifications very serious ramifications for for people, um, this whole phenomenon of planking and uh, that there was a, a boy, uh, a young man in Australia, Acton Beale. First of all, if you're not familiar with planking, I do think that we, uh, we may have a video on that too. Uh, sorry, Burke, for not more of a heads up on that. But if you have that uh, anywhere handy, you can play it while I'm talking here. Um, Planking apparently it's not something I'd heard of. Evan, you put this one in the discussion points. Oh, here I'll, I'll uh, put the video. I just put the over. link into IRC for to the, to the video on, on, on planking. Great. All right, so Burke, that's coming your way. Um, so people are going around, and because they can uh, take photos and or videos of themselves doing this, they are um, laying on top of things like signposts and um, scaffolding and. <laughs> The idea is simply to um, lay, I'm not sure if there is a convention that one lays on their tummy only or also on their back, but you lay with your hands stiff at your sides as though you are a plank. And uh, there we go. There's some video of some people planking around. (laughs) uh, I think you have to be prone and not supine. All right. There we go. That's what the article said. Or at least it said yet. Yes, they all do seem to be uh, head down. Oh, except for that one, the plank sandwich. I do like that. Oh, the planking down the stairs. So, um, you know, but for online video, there is no planking, right? Or I, one could argue photos. Uh, the, the whole purpose of doing this is to share the activity in a community sort of crowdsourced way and uh, chuckle at what your fellow plankers have been up to or chuckle at what plankers in general have been up to if you would never do such a thing. Um, but the, the the danger is that it encourages people to both break laws. I'm I'm fairly confident that planking would be against some sort of public safety law in whatever venue it's happening in, and uh, and it encourages them to take you know extreme risks. And this uh, guy in Australia, um, I suppose it was inevitable that someone was going to have a problem with it. He died. Uh, trying to plank on, I believe it was some sort of balcony on a multi-story building. Um, so, Evan, what do you think? You, you know, to add this to our role of video in society discussion, and mm-hmm. what do you think? I bring this in, and I think of this in terms of that uh, ever-present 
um, distinction that we need to make sometimes between legal regulations and normative regulations. Yes, there are laws that are broken and there are causes of action that arise when this is done in some circumstances, like if you're going to trespass onto someone else's property so that you can uh, have a photo taken of yourself planking thereupon, you know, there's, 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 that's unlawful. And that's, that would have been unlawful in the 15th century, just like it is now, I guess you would have had a hard time having the photo taken of yourself in the 15th century, but let's, you know, that's neither here nor there. Yes, and um, your YouTube count would have been low. Right. I guess you would have somebody do a uh, woodcut engraving of you <laughs> there in the 15th century. Sorry. Um, so, you know, there, there are these, um, you know, these, these, these things that are unlawful about it, but what we have here is a, a layer of complexity added onto it with the technology and the way that community can arise around these activities and, uh, you know, enthusiasm and, um, um, you know, uh, you know, that yeah, it becomes a popular thing to do. And, and we've seen this before on YouTube, you know, people acting dumb. You know, the examples like that are a dime a dozen. You know, this trend of people, um, you know, throwing the, the, the drinks on the people as you go through the drive through at McDonald's. You know, you throw the drink back at the person working at McDonald's. You film that on YouTube and everybody gets a giggle out of that. So, you know, it's not a new phenomenon. But what we see here, it's all fun and games until somebody falls seven stories to their death. Um, it's interesting, and, and I think the challenge for us is to, uh, to, to put place this in the appropriate normative framework rather than uh, trying to enact laws to counteract this or to deal with this because the laws that are there are perfectly appropriate, the laws of trespass, the laws of you know, violating public safety, whatever those may be from jurisdiction to, to jurisdiction. It's all something that is outside of the law but something that does indeed lend itself to regulation in that way. And that, I, that's, that, that is pleasing to me at a cognitive level to, to think about it in those terms. Right. Tom, I, I think that this is interesting against the backdrop of your conclusion on the, the cops wearing cameras story. You never know when you're going to be on camera. You'll be guarded in everything you do. This sort of flips that on its head, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, um you know, it's, some of these things can be uh, a fun activity for people. Obviously, you need to use some common sense. Um, um, like, don't do it when you're drunk. But, uh, um, but yeah, there's, uh, now we have so many media uh, technologies around us and media tools. So, um, uh, and that's what the Facebook phenomenon is all about, too. It's about... Uh, um, publishing and sharing and uh, and so on. So, um, um, and, and we're going to get more and more of these kind of weird, uh, uh, weird things happening, like planking. Um, but they run their course, and uh, something else pops up, and hopefully, something that's not going to be as uh, uh, potentially uh, life-threatening. Right. So. Hey, uh, Justin, I I promised that we'd get into some. Uh, Patent stuff today. Maybe someone's going to file a patent on that sandwich plank we saw in the video. Um, but in the meantime, <laughs> while we're waiting for that, <laughs> while we're waiting for that, uh, tell us what's going on. Uh, you had an interesting post on false marking and how those suits are decreasing. You, you've uh, walked us through that before on earlier episodes of the show. Explain for us one more time um, about false marking and, and what it means that some of these cases seem to be going away. Sure, I'll try to give the, the two-minute overview of uh, false marking and then kind of 
talk about where where we've been and where we're going. Um, so false marking, there's a statute, it's 35 U.S.C. 292, that talks about uh, marking patent numbers on products and uh, product literature. I mean, there's, there are countless products. Uh, I was actually before the show trying to find one that was in my office, but I, I actually couldn't, which maybe doesn't make my point. Um, but there are tons of products out there where you might see a patent number on the product. Um, that is, you know, there are various incentives for uh, patent holders to mark products with patents. But on the flip side, um, we do not necessarily want any patent, even if it shouldn't be marked on a product, to be sitting on that product. So 35 U.S.C. 292 allows for fines if you falsely mark a product with intent to deceive the public. And the fine is up to $500 per offense. Now, the reason why this is a, a big issue now and has been from 2010 onward is that late, very late in 2010, there was this question of what does per offense mean? And the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit said in very late 2010 that each offense is per article. So essentially per article marked with the patent. Um, given that particular holding, not surprisingly, in 2010, we saw a false marking frenzy. Uh, mm -hmm. Literally close to 1,000 lawsuits um, have been filed between about January 1st of 2010 and today, all alleging false marking. Most right. of the cases are also involving um, specifically expired patent numbers. Um, so let me just jump in here and, and set the stage for this. If you are uh, an opportunistic plaintiff, you might be out there looking for expired patent numbers, um, manufacturing mistakes, and when you found a, a lot of them on a product, you'd rush in and file a claim. Is that essentially it? Yeah, that's essentially it. And what we ended up seeing is a lot of the plaintiffs... Uh, who were involved in these suits and filed these lawsuits in 2010 appeared to be entities normally just created as an LLC that were specifically created to file these false marking lawsuits. Um, and it was basically as easy as trying to go to your local, you know, Walmart or, or you know, uh, convenience store or whatever and try to find products that had expired patent numbers on them. Once you find the product, then you sue the associated company. Um, so in 2010, like I said, there were you know, just a ton of these lawsuits. It was a flood of lawsuits being filed. What we've seen very recently um, is that that trend may be slowing down quite a bit. The issue uh, that has come up is that the Federal Circuit, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, who deals with all patent cases, has clarified what the pleading the initial pleading standard for a complaint, the initial document you file in court, um, is with respect to these false marking claims. There was an issue of whether it was a relaxed pleading standard, which is Rule 8A, or whether it's a heightened pleading standard, which is Rule 9B. District courts had gone either way on this issue. The Federal Circuit in middle of March clarified that for false marking claims, the appropriate standard is 9B, not 8A. Um, so it makes it much more difficult 
to have a complaint that actually stands up because you have to allege certain things that um, for various reasons usually aren't present in most of these cases. So from if you look at, and I have on, on my website, Gray on Claims, I have a specific section on false marking cases where I've tabulated um, with the help of others every false marking case that's been filed in the last 18 months or so. Um, since March 15th or so, we've seen a huge drop off in the number of cases being filed. We've also seen uh, a very good number of cases, very large number of cases that are being now dismissed by district courts. Um, so, you know, the, the frenzy may be, you know, it's not over yet. Um, there are still cases being filed. There are still a lot of cases that are pending in the courts. Uh, further, actually, a lot of cases have um, settled, not surprisingly. And that's actually another interesting nugget with these types of cases because the, set, because the, uh, the fines, the statute says that half of the fine goes to the plaintiff who filed the lawsuit. The other half goes to the United States government. Because that half goes to the United States government, it is subject to Freedom of Information Act requests. And various folks, including myself, have made Freedom of Information Act requests to the government to get access to this data. And also on my website, I have another chart that shows um, information on pretty much every single case that has been settled uh, since about May of last year. So, you know, these cases, about 270 of them or so have settled thus far. Um, many more are being dismissed. There are some that are going forward. Um, but the the wave that we've seen in 2010, I think, is at, at the very least going on, going down as opposed to continuing to go up. Right. Matt McCarries in IRC, and he's chimed in and said the key to false marking cases should be on intent, much like inequitable conduct and fraud allegations. Is that pretty much how this is shaking out? Yes. When, when the cases actually go past the initial pleading stage, and obviously many of them are just being taken care of there, um, since most of the cases deal with expired patents and the federal circuit has said that an expired patent put on a product is in fact a false marking, um, that prawn of the false marking statute has already basically been taken care of. So the v vast majority of the analysis goes into intent to deceive the public. Um, so there's, you know, that, that's really where um, for these cases that go past the pleading stage, that's really where the fight is going to be. Right. Hey, you know what? I have another patent issue I want to discuss with you. There's yet another patent reform bill pending, and I want to get your two cents on that. Some people seem to think it's going to, you know, bring down the entire United States. But before we get to that, I do want to thank our sponsor for episode 112 of This Week in Law, and that is Netflix. Of course, this show is brought to you by Netflix. It delivers movies directly to your home, and that saves you time, money, and hassle. Hey, uh, just to work in, you know, something that I think we might not have gotten to in the context of this ad, in the discussion points, did you see that uh, Netflix bandwidth has actually exceeded BitTorrents? Um, I did put that in the discussion points for the panel. And uh, let's see, it's got 22.2% of uh, the bandwidth, uh, total nationwide bandwidth in the U.S., as opposed to 21.6% uh, by uh, BitTorrent these days. So um, 
that means yeah. that uh, the Netflix model is actually working. And, uh, you know, we could have all sorts of interesting discussion around that, too. Yes, thoughts? I just wanted to mention that Netflix is actually facing a problem now because um, uh, a lot of uh, cable companies and, and telcos uh, uh, have instituted bandwidth caps. So mm -hmm. uh, Netflix recently sent a letter to the uh, FCC chairman um, saying that uh, these bandwidth caps uh, uh, have a potential for stifling innovation. And obviously, Netflix is the one that um, has the most at stake here at the moment. But also, there's thousands of Silicon Valley startups whose models are based on, you know, uh, uh, homes having high-speed connections and sharing all types of media types and so on. If there's a bandwidth cap, uh, those homes are going to be uh, uh, careful about what what they what they view, what they do, and. Um, so Netflix is 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 fighting a battle that uh, will benefit um, if it succeeds to to get rid of these caps will, will benefit a lot of uh, innovative companies. Uh, so some of these uh, bandwidth caps that they're, they're going to be charging as much as uh, um, uh, some of them charge as much as uh, a dollar per gigabyte of extra bandwidth. Um, now, gigabyte isn't that much these days. Uh, Netflix says that in its letter to the FCC that the, the actual incremental cost of that gigabyte is more like a penny per gigabyte. So these companies are, are going to be making a lot of money. Um, and, and also, it's not much of an incentive to actually upgrade the uh, the, the U.S. infrastructure, which already falls way behind a lot of developing countries. You know, what's the incentive to upgrade the Internet infrastructure if you can charge people as much as a dollar uh, gigabyte for something that's costing you a penny uh, to, 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 to carry? So um, but, but there's quite a big issue here that uh, Netflix is trying to deal with. Right, and it's, it's fighting the good fight there, as you say, for other companies that will follow in its wake. And your number in your post there, Tom, if uh, folks want to read more about that, uh, you actually had that it was uh, accounting for 30% of internet traffic. Um, yeah, during even, the evenings. Yeah, just yeah, during the evening. Uh, during time. the evening hours. Yeah, okay. So the other one must be on average. Um, so, you know, folks, it's time to go out and just uh, keep that traffic spiking up uh, because <laughs> Netflix, of course, uh, has instant video available where you can watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed directly to your PC or Mac or stream to your TV via a Netflix-ready device, including Xbox 360, PS3, Nintendo Wii, Roku, or any number of other products who are riding on the back of Netflix's success here. Uh, plus, you can get DVDs by mail in about one business day. You can watch as many of those movies as you want anytime you want. There are never any late fees or due dates. And uh, we have a pick of the week for you. This is uh, what my son watched on the way back from uh, our vacation last week. In uh, the Netflix Instant Q, there is The Karate Kid, the second version, uh, with Jaden Smith. Um, which I, I liked quite a bit. Uh, I, too, watched the movie. I was a little bit disappointed that they felt the need to ratchet up the kid viciousness um, in the, the reimagined version of Karate Kid. It was vicious enough in the first one, I thought. And Yeah, Ralph, little... Ralph Macchio, he's, you don't, he's to not be messed with. 
Yeah, in the exactly. First, you know, how, when you think vicious, I think Ralph Macchio. But anyway, <laughs> well, it's the, the bullies, really. I was thinking of that. Really, you know, they ah. really pummel poor little Jaden Smith in this film, and he uh, he has every reason to dislike and come after them and and prevail in the end, as of course he does. No spoilers here. I'm sure everyone's familiar with the story, but it's a it's a great movie and it's a good example of how there's. Um, really recent content in the Netflix instant library too. That one uh, came out, you know, I think just a few months ago on DVD. Uh, anyway, so that is our uh, streaming pick of the week. You can instantly watch this movie or choose from thousands of TV episodes and other movies when you register for a free trial membership at netflix.com slash twit. And we thank Netflix for their support of This Week in Law. All right, Justin, so we've got yet another patent reform bill. It seems like one comes along uh, every six months or so. And uh, this one I've read very mixed things about. I don't know if that always happens. But uh, a couple of stories in particular have stated that um, things won't, you know, can't be patented in the U.S. anymore if this passes, basically, you know getting a little bit extreme in their rhetoric there, and uh, that our whole na national security is is bound to suffer because of the inability to patent necessary security technologies. Uh, what's your take, Justin? Well, in the at least in the show notes, there was a uh, an article that I, I read this morning from the Mercury News on this topic, and at least there... Uh, Here's their view is that um, citizen review of patents is, is necessary and, and will solve all of our problems. Um, at least, you know, backing, backing up uh, a second, Denise, you're right that we do see um, patent reform legislation coming up in pretty much every session of Congress. Uh, the, the why it's being talked about, I think, a little bit more this time around than in past years is that we actually... Um, appear to be getting closer, um, not necessarily close, but closer to passing some sort of comprehensive patent reform. Uh, for example, the, the Senate had its uh, Patent Reform Act uh, that it has passed 95 to 5. There is also a House version um, which makes some changes but is, is slowly making its way through the various channels in the House. Uh, whether if that gets passed, you know, there will be able, if the Senate and the House will be able to reconcile the two bills and actually get it up to, to uh, President Obama for a signature remains to be seen. And I'm not um, all that optimistic until I see uh, see further movement, um, but I my general thought is is this at least for a lot of the stories that we're seeing, um, you know, m many of them are uh, couched in a doom and gloom uh, scenario where you know everything all is for naught if this patent reform act passes and if the patent reform act passes in its current form it's not solving any problems and if we only did you know this or that if we only did you know if we only threw more money at the problem or if we only you know like the mercury news article um, suggests have citizen review and throw more information in front of the patent office then that would solve all of our problems um, coming from my you know, perspective dealing with this on, you know, a daily basis, it's just not that simple. Um, for example, this, the 
people talking about citizen review of patents and trying to get more information in front of the patent office. Well, if you do that, there's, of course, a possibility that uh, in many cases, the patent office will get flooded with information on particular patents. And somebody at the patent office actually has to go through and review that information, at least in theory. And so to solve that problem, you either have to get more examiners on each patent application. You throw more person power at it. In order to do that, you have to throw more money at the office. Um, and also there's a timing aspect that's, that's at issue here as well. It already takes, depending on uh, what technology you're dealing with, you know, anywhere between 15 months and, you know, five, six plus years um, to even get a patent given the current system. So you throw more information at the office that people have to review. That, in theory, makes it even a longer process to get a patent. Um, and there's just, there's a lot of moving pieces um, that have to be dealt with. Now, I haven't read the entire uh I admit that I haven't read the entire Senate version of the Patent Reform Act, um, but there's definitely, you know, things in there that, that are good, things in there that might not be so good, and also depending on what industry you're in, if you're in the pharma industry, you might like certain provisions uh, much more than if you're in the electronics industry, you might not like those same provisions because of um, the various issues that you're dealing with depending on the technology. So all in all, um, I hate to just say it and kind of throw up my hands, but uh, this is a, it's a very complicated issue. I don't think that one, you know, specific thing, um, regardless of what it is, is going to solve these perceived problems with the patent office. Um, but I think what you know, the best we can do is try to take a measured approach and try to just, you know, move things slowly in the right direction, try out different things um, and see how they work in practice and then see what the results are and if people are overall happy with the results. Wish I had a better answer. <laughs> no, we appreciate your insights. It's a complicated question. And, can, can I ask uh, uh, you guys something? Uh, sure. uh, in, in my industry, there's a lot of concern about patent trolls. And, you know, there's, uh, um, uh, we, we haven't really even seen uh, the worst of it yet. Um, is the legislation um, addressing some of those concerns? Is it, is it going to make it more difficult for patent trolls to uh, bring cases? That, that I have not seen. Um, you know, the mm -hmm. term patent troll is, is, is thrown around a lot. There also people call them you know, non-practicing entities. Um, mm. the, the issue, you know, there are definitely perceived issues with, with, with patent trolls um, or non-practicing entities filing many suits. And you've seen, um, I think it was just within the last month, there was a, a case or, or a number of cases filed against, I think, hundreds of different companies regarding uh, one particular patent. I haven't looked into that case to see if it is truly a non-practicing entity or not. Um, but that, that issue is, you know, also very, it's very difficult and very complicated because you have to... Um, if you have a concern about non-practicing entities or, you know, to, to actually define that term, um, an entity that owns a patent but does not actually practice the invention that's claimed in the patent, you see that not only from, um, 
entities that purchase a number of patents and then go out and enforce them, but also from, you know, small and large companies alike. I mean, you, you know, I, I know on tech blogs, uh, anytime, you know, a large technology company gets an interesting patent, there's usually a, a, a post about it and whether or not that patent's going to be implemented in any products. Well, some of those patents are, of course, will be implemented in products and some of them will not. Um, even though those companies do make products that might involve other patents. So, it, it, again, it's a very um, complicated issue uh, to try to draw a line for the non-practicing entities when any patent is asserted that might not be actually practiced by the person, by the entity owning it, and trying to separate out those that we consider to be, you know, quote-unquote good entities versus bad entities. Um, so it's just another, you know, it's another complicated problem that there's no uh, no easy solution, and there's no solution that I think is going to is going to make everybody happy. All right. Well, just an update for you here. Netflix, uh, not Netflix, sorry. <laughs> Mind elsewhere. Still in the Bahamas, apparently. Uh, LinkedIn <laughs> trading at ninety five fifty six. Um, and uh, that's our, our uh, segue to our tip, I'm sorry, resource of the week as well. Did you know that if you were not able to get in on the IPO here or have any privately held LinkedIn stock, you could have. And it's not too late. You've still got companies like uh, Facebook out there, plenty mm. of other um, sweet privately held companies. Maybe you're interested in Twitter uh, that you might want to buy a stock. And did you know it's actually legal and possible for you to do that? There are uh, outfits out there. One of them is called Second Market. Another one is called, let's see. Shares Post. Shares Post. That's exactly what yeah. I was thinking of. I, I went um, to a Shares Post conference recently and I had mm -hmm. a former SEC commissioner speaking and, and also lawyers from Wilson Sonsini. And it was it was pretty interesting. The lawyers from Wilson Sonsini were warning that there's going to be insider trading lawsuits in the secondary markets, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know companies should be very careful to make sure they have insider trading policies in place and, and so on. Um, you know, it's it's a it's becoming quite a vibrant market, but it's a it's a it's a private stock market where the public aren't allowed to take part. You have to be an accredited. Uh, investor, which means you have to show uh, you, you have a certain amount of wealth, and and if you can show that, then um, uh, the SEC that doesn't really mind what you what you trade. Um, however, you know once we start running into problems, once people start losing money. Um, uh, there's not that much liquidity in these markets, so they could be manipulated by uh, groups of individuals. We, we might start seeing uh, so, some, some new laws and regulations in that area. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised by that at all because these sites, uh, they you know, are doing their best to gatekeep on that accredited investor front. You have to have more than $200,000 per year annual uh, income or hold at least a million in assets before you can even get in the door. And then once you are in the door, um, second market representative Mark Murphy told Business Insider that the average transaction on the service is $2 million per trade. So, you know, you have to be a pretty big fish out there to be able to, to play in this market. 
But, um, you know, you, we've talked about it just on this show today. There are ways to game those kinds of systems. You could see people trying to uh, slip in if they did not actually meet those requirements just so that they could, um, you know, engage in this kind of potentially profitable investing. So um, I, I'm with you, Tom, that I think that the SEC is going to watch this closely and uh, make sure, you know, there's a concern, too, for the, um, the individuals who are selling their stock. They're probably people who work for these companies. That's the only way you get <laughs> that kind of stock in your hands, right? Um, and uh, whether there are sufficient protections for them as well, too. So um, interesting legal thing to watch. But uh, for the meantime, our, our resource of the week are things like Shares Post and Second Market. And there's an article called How to Buy Stock in Facebook over at our discussion points for today's show at delicious.com slash internet cases slash 112. We also have a tip of the week for you that flows from my uh, my journeys in the Bahamas last week. I stumbled on this great article uh, that uh, someone uh, named uh, Venkat Rao uh, wrote. He has, has a blog called Ribbon Farm. Uh, he's been around the web for a while. He's uh, guest posted on Mashable and other places, and he's a good writer and thinker, and he wrote something called Bargaining with Your Right Brain. And uh, it's a lengthy post, so I'll let you go over and check it out yourself. But the crux of it is that uh, you he really goes through um, the various gambits that people undergo when they're, they're bargaining over things. And I think it's a really interesting tip for us here on This Week in Law, because 99.99% of the lawsuits that we talk about on this show uh, end up in some sort of settlement forum like uh, the LimeWire case that uh, they talked about so capably last week. And uh, so this is really crucial. You know, everything that applies to bargaining for a straw purse or a child's toy in the Bahamas applies just as equally when you get into these high-powered law, for, law firm boardrooms and the terms are being hashed out the typical thing of going in there with your low ball number and meeting somewhere in the middle, you know, that's, that's one way to go. But he really lays out um, some different ways of thinking about bargaining and negotiating. And I thought it was a fascinating piece and I throw it out for you all to enjoy as I have very much enjoyed this show. Thank you so much, Tom Ferenski, for joining us today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. I did too. Uh, Tom is at Tom Fremsky if you're looking him up in other circles such as Twitter. And of course, the Silicon Valley Watcher is his blog. So we really appreciate all your thoughts and insights. And I hope we can have you back sometime. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love all to right. do that. Also joining us, Justin Gray. Justin, really thrilled to have all your thoughts and insights about all those important patent and other points. Really appreciate your coming on. Thank you for having me on again. It was a lot of fun. Always look forward to being on the show. Thank you. And I believe Justin is great on claims both at his blog and on Twitter. Is that right? That is correct. Gray on claims, gray with an A. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Justin. And Thank Evan, you. great as always chatting with you. Yes, I enjoyed it very much as well. Great to talk with you, Justin, Tom. Great to uh, talk with you as well. Tom, nice to meet you. Justin, good uh, to talk with you again. Right. Evan, too, is Internet Cases, wherever you are looking for him, uh, both on Twitter and his blog and uh, elsewhere in the world, too, no doubt. So go out and hit him up. 
And uh, thank you so much again, Evan, for doing such a great job last week while I was gone and for uh, helping out so capably in uh, aggregating our discussion points for today, too, over on your delicious account for a change. Yes, my pleasure. It was a, it was a great time. I had a great time last week. And uh, I, I think I said this before we actually started uh, rolling. So I'll say it again. You know, I have a new appreciation for the work that you do hosting the show every week. It requires a lot of RAM up in your head. So uh, <laughs> you, you, you certainly make it look easy and do a wonderful job. And uh, so it's, uh, I have, definitely have a new appreciation for it. Thank you. Yes, doing the show definitely keeps all my chips humming. I like to remember uh, on those chips up there to tell people that after the show, if they want to get in touch, you can email me. I'm Denise at twit.tv. We are, of course, available on places like iTunes and YouTube and also on uh, the Twit site itself, which is twit.tv slash twill. And as brilliant people have figured out, we, we don't have comments on the Twit uh, website itself, but I blog at bagandbaggage.com and people are uh, very wise in hitting me up with comments there too. Um, so I get those comments when you post them to Bag and Baggage, but uh, we all get them and the rest of the public who watch the show can see them too over on the show's Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash thisweekinlaw. It is open for comments there 24-7 and we also try to post up our some of our pre-show links that we'd love to get your thoughts and comments on each week. So uh, do hit us up there between the shows. Next week for episode 113, we will record at uh, Friday, 11 Pacific time and 1800 UTC. And we look forward to hopefully seeing you then. Thanks so much. Take care.